Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. All right, kids. See Pastor Stephen in the back? He has his hand up. If you are under junior high age, please feel free to join him. And we have a special program for you. All right, if you're new, my name is Kurt. I am one of the pastors, and I am very thankful to have you. Last week, we began a new series. It's a mini-series for the month of August. It's called, What Does the Bible Say About Sexuality? Sexuality is a big topic in our culture. Last week, we looked at heterosexuality. We looked at what the Bible says for marriage, and we also looked at what the Bible says about dating and how you prepare for marriage. In short, the Bible tells us that prior to the wedding night, God's standard is absolute purity, and after the wedding night, it's passionate intimacy. And the little shorthand that we have around our house is if you wouldn't do it with your sister, you don't do it with your girlfriend. That's what the Scripture teaches. Now, if you are single and searching, or if you have somebody in your house who is single and searching, I highly recommend you go to the crosswinds.tv website and you listen to that message. Some of the material in that message, I wish somebody had had enough guts to preach it when I was growing up, because it would have saved me some heartache, and hopefully I can save you some heartache along the way as you learn about God's standard for heterosexual relationships. This morning, we move on from heterosexuality, and we're looking at homosexuality. And homosexuality is a very hot topic in our culture, especially with the legalization of same-sex marriage. And the right of a homosexual couple to wed is often equated with, finally, the women, like, have rights to vote. And the Finally, the blacks were freed from slavery, and now the homosexuals can get married, and it's, it's equated that way. And if you do not agree with homosexual same-sex unions and condone that, uh, you are considered unloving. You're considered a bigot. You are considered behind the times. And believe it or not, some people even consider you biblically ignorant if you are opposed to same-sex unions. Many people do not teach on it. and They certainly don't teach on it with the kind of detail and granularity that we are going to work on it with today. This is a very serious subject. And because it is a serious subject, we're going to spend two weeks dealing with homosexuality instead of one. Uh, this week, the goal is to cover all the biblical passages that teach about homosexuality. There's seven key ones. We're going to look at every single one of them. Next week, we're going to deal with the questions that often go along with sexuality. Well, the questions would be something like, well, what happens if I was born with a homosexual orientation? Or, uh, you know, what should I do about this or that? We'll deal with all those next week. This week is primarily just keeping our finger in the text. Um, we're also going to deal with a book, and this book is written by Mark Actemeyer. I told you about it last week. It's called um, The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage and Evangelical's Change of Heart. 
Mark Actemeyer is a uh, Presbyterian professor. I believe he's at Dubuque University. He's an outspoken Presbyterian who was opposed to same-sex marriage, and he changed his mind. Now he advocates same-sex marriage, and just this past summer, he has been the outspoken proponent at the Presbyterian um, National Gathering trying to sway that denomination to endorse same-sex unions. And as part of that, he wrote this book, and I saw a kid reading this book down at Arnold's Park, so I quickly wrote it down, and I said, I'm going to read it. Give me your best shot. Go ahead and try and change my mind. And he did not change my mind in the least. In fact, I now understand his arguments, and I can show you why they are faulty and they do not work. So we're going to interact with his book along the way this morning. Also, you need to know that I'm going to use a specific term for those who are pro-homosexuality and, and pro-same-sex union. The term I'm going to use this morning is called the revisionists. And I don't mean to be demeaning towards them to call them the revisionists, but it's a very accurate description of their position. For 2,000 years of church history, there has been no debate on this subject. It's abundantly biblically clear that homosexuality and same-sex unions are apart from God's will. They are sin. And all of a sudden, you have a few of these people who come along in, in recent years and say, you know, we've been reading our Bible and studying our Bible, and we've learned that all the great minds of church history, Calvin, Luther, Augustine, they all missed it. Really, homosexuality is a good deal. Really? C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. If you think you're smarter than everybody else before you just because you came later in history, you better check yourself. That usually means you're a heretic, doesn't it? And that's exactly what we have going on here. So I'm going to use the term revisionist because that's what they are. They're revising the clear teaching of 2,000 years and of the greatest minds of church history. So let's go ahead and jump in. We have seven passages to look at. And I'm sorry for the, the detail, by the way, in the sermon outline. I, I promised you I would give you lots of detail so you can talk with your friends later about this. And, and it necessitates we get into things at this level. So let's begin. We'll start at Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What does the creation of man, women, and marriage teach us about homosexuality? Genesis 1 and 2 are very important chapters because the rest of the Bible consistently refers back to the first two chapters of Genesis. The first two chapters of Genesis, God gives us the template of how life should operate. For instance, it tells us that we're not a product of chance, that we are a specific, purposeful creation of God. It tells us that God created man. It tells us that God created woman. It also tells us in Genesis 2.24 that God created the institution of marriage, that it's God's idea, not society or government's idea to have a wedded union. Uh, and you, you have to constantly go back to this. And the Bible goes back to these early chapters as the template for what life should be like today. Now, let me show you how this works. Let's begin with the basics and then get deeper. Number one, 
The creation of woman shows she is the only possible marital and sexual complement for a man. Pretty straightforward. I got an amen in the back there. Let me show you what it says in Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. What happened is... Um, Adam was intentionally made incomplete. Part of Adam was taken out of Adam, making him incomplete. That part was then refashioned into a woman. So when, like, Eve comes back to Adam, they are complete again. Because what was missing from Adam is then reunited with Adam. By definition, Two men cannot recomplete one another. Two women, by definition, cannot recomplete one another. It just doesn't, doesn't work. And look at Adam's response to this when Eve is brought to him. Then the man said, This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam isn't stoked because, oh, what? Here's another animal and it's the perfect fit. Adam isn't stoked about this because here's another man. He's stoked about this because this is the perfect fit for him. This is what was taken out of him that now recompletes him. Remember, two men cannot complete one another. Two women cannot complete one another. Only a man and a woman can complete one another. That's what Genesis tells us. Secondly, only two people of opposite gender can fulfill the procreative purpose of marriage. One of the purposes of coming together and recompleting one another in marriage is that a husband and wife would have children. They would be fruitful and multiply. The Scriptures tell us this is what is supposed to happen. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God wants couples to create children. Now, I realize that not every married couple can have children, and that's because of sin in this world, and because of sin, sometimes the biology doesn't quite function like it should. But in an ideal situation, a man and a woman have children. There is no conceivable way that two men can have children together. There is no conceivable way that two women can have children together. Homosexual couples cannot fulfill the procreative purpose of marriage. It is a biological impossibility. And yes, procreation is one of the purposes of marriage, a God-given thing that He wants a married couple to do. In fact, it doesn't just find it in Genesis, but we find it being echoed in Malachi. Look what Malachi says. And God blessed them, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Oop, I got the wrong one. Correct me. My eyes are bad. Move down one. Did not He make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God's Spirit 
is unites a husband and wife together. And what was God seeking in this union, this marital union? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. If there's no possible way to have godly offspring, it's backwards. You're violating the Genesis purpose of marriage. What do the revisionists say about this? Seems to me pretty clear. Well, here's what the revisionists say. They say Genesis chapter 2 just describes what is normal marriage. But every marriage doesn't have to be that way. Normally it's a heterosexual couple, but it doesn't specifically say that homosexual couples aren't, aren't, aren't possible. Well, here's the question. Is Genesis chapter 2 just giving what is normally supposed to take place? Or is it giving what is normative? Normative means what should always take place. What do you think? Normal or normative for all of time? I'm going to tell you the answer is normative. This is the way that all marriages should always take place. And you know why? Because Jesus and Paul claim Genesis doesn't just make heterosexual marriage normal. It makes it normative. Jesus and Paul go back to Genesis chapter 2 and say, this is God's design for marriage at all times, heterosexual union. Let me show you. Jesus, uh, he was being questioned about divorce in his day. And in his day, there is two schools of divorce. There is the easy divorce. Your wife burned your dinner, you can divorce her. There is the hard divorce school, which said, you know, you really can't divorce your wife. If things are tough between you, you stick it out. And so they asked Jesus, well, what are you, an easy divorce guy or are you a hard divorce guy? And Jesus says, I'm a hard divorce guy. I'm a stick it out guy. And here's why. And this is what he says. He answered, you, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? See, he's going back to Genesis right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Have you not read Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? That is the template for marriage. They are joined together for all of time. Jesus says that is the normative. Always make it that way template. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He quotes from Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End of quoting Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself, and that the wife, she that she re respects her husband. When Jesus and Paul, and incidentally Peter as well, say that heterosexual union from Genesis is the normative pattern for marriage for all of time, I'm going to go with them. Jesus, Paul, and Peter are a pretty good crowd to stick with. And so when somebody comes along and says, we're just going to redefine it to be between now two men and two women, you don't have the authority. Because you didn't create marriage. God created it in Genesis. 
And it is that pattern for all of time. So this is what we pick up from Genesis 2.24 as we think about homosexuality. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 2. Now let's dive into the next passage that, in the Bible that talks about homosexuality. That is Genesis chapter 19. And this is Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys have heard of this. Why were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? I mean, they're a famous city. I mean, if you're going to city's going to be famous, hopefully it's not for what Sodom and Gomorrah were famous for. They were famous for being so sick in sin that God rained down fire from heaven to destroy them. I mean, that's not what you want to be known for. What do, the, what do the revisionists say? Do they say that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed from homosexual sin? No, they actually say it's different. This is what they say. The revisionists say Sodom was guilty of social injustice and massive inhospitality. That's why they were destroyed. Let me uh, quote for you from Mark Actemeyer. This is in the very section of his book where he responds to Genesis 19 and says why it's not applicable. He says, Men of Sodom... Uh, uh, the men of Sodom intend to inflict dramatic punishment on Lot's guests in order to ensure that their city would never have to tolerate the presence of foreigners within its walls. I mean, we don't want visitors. We want to be inhospitable. The particular behavior that is judged so negatively in this passage turns out to be homosexual gang rape that is used as a weapon against foreigners to make sure we have no visitors. This negative judgment against gang rape has no implication at all for the loving, covenanted partnerships and marriages. Really? That the big issue here was them being super inhospitable and they were just using homosexuality as a way to make sure they had no visitors? The revisionists also turned to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 has the longest extended discussion on the sin of Sodom outside of the Genesis passage. Let me read for you what it says in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They say, you see... The real issue is social injustice and inhospitality. How would you respond? What would you say to a revisionist who, who claimed those issues? Let me help you respond to them. First of all, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 16. What we find here is this. Sodom was guilty of more than social injustices and inhospitality. It was also guilty of sexual sin. And to show you this, all I need to do is continue reading Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Let's just read the next verse, verse 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. They did an abomination 
before God, and God got angry and wiped them out. What is this abomination? Interestingly, the word abomination in the singular is not used many times in the Scripture. In the plural, it's used multiple times, but singular has some very rare occurrences. You know where you find abomination used in the singular? Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. Let me read those verses to you. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. In other words, what Ezekiel was doing was intentionally, when he said abomination, he was intentionally echoing Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. Because all the good Jewish boys knew about the sin that was an abomination. It's homosexuality. And so when he, he says they did an abomination, they're all going, oh, it's, it's, it's homosexuality. That's what God destroyed them over. This is very important. Incidentally, I want you to notice how serious God takes this sin of homosexuality. It was the death penalty for both parties. No questions asked. So, very clear. Also, the Scriptures later in the New Testament refer back to Sodom. And they tell us a little bit more about the sin of Sodom. It wasn't just social injustice and bad hospitality. Jude chapter 7 describes Sodom's sin as heterosexual sin and homosexual sin. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Well, sexual immorality is the generic term pornea, which refers to sexuality being expressed outside of the marriage covenant. That is premarital sexuality, extramarital sexuality, pornography, all of that. But they didn't just have heterosexuality that was expressed outside of the marriage covenant. They had what was, they pursued unnatural desire. In the Hebrew, it literally says they pursued unnatural flesh. Now, what is the natural flesh for most men to pursue? Uh, women, right? What is the natural flesh for most women to pursue? Men? Well, what would be the unnatural flesh to pursue? Men pursuing men? Women pursuing women? Jude chapter 7 says they were destroyed for heterosexual sin and they were destroyed for homosexual sin. It's right there in the text. Now, the revisionist camp, they come back and they say, well, we understand. Just realize that this is only talking about um, violent gang rape. It's not talking about loving, consensual, mutually affections between two homosexual men or two homosexual women. Really? You're going to tell me 
that in Sodom, which was known for its serious heterosexual sin and serious homosexual sin, that the only time you had homosexuality displays was when it was violent gang rape? Think about that. There was no instances of two men wanting to actually display homosexual affections to one another? I don't think so. Their argument is an argument from silence because it does not say that this is the only kind of homosexuality that took place. Let's continue. The next place we find homosexuality talked about after Genesis 19 is Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20 verse 13. And here's the question that often comes up. Why should we listen to two little verses in a forgotten Old Testament book? Here's the verses. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Or 20.13, if a male lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. These two verses in Leviticus are very controversial with the revisionists. The argument they say to us is, how can you just pull out these two little verses in a forgotten Old Testament book and say that they apply to us today? I mean, we're New Testament Christians. We don't focus on the Old Testament law anymore. How can you do this? The book of Leviticus has all kinds of things we don't obey. It talks about not eating shellfish, but you had lobster and shrimp this past week. It talks about not wearing clothing woven of two fabrics, but your shirt is a cotton-polyester blend. So you can't just ignore some things and then say when it comes to homosexuality, we're going to apply that. That's picking and choosing. That's not fair. You can't do that. How would you answer them? Let me help you think through this. Let's step out a little bit. Leviticus, as a book, is all about holiness. It's about God's holiness. It's about God's people's holiness. You have, uh, they live in a, a holy place, Israel. They worship in a holy temple that everybody doesn't, doesn't just walk into whenever they want. They wear holy garments as priests. They observe holy days. They have a holy law that separates them from the people around them. They're distinct. They're different. They're set apart for God. And as you're going through Leviticus, and you get to Leviticus chapter 17, Leviticus 17 begins what is called the holiness code or the moral code of holiness. Leviticus chapter 18, it talks about the holiness code regarding family and sexuality. How are God's people supposed to be different in the way they conduct themselves in family and sexuality? Now, Leviticus 18 doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us the basics of God honoring family and sexual expression. Let me just go ahead and detail this. Now, if you would like to open your Bibles to Leviticus 18 and follow along, feel free to do it. I sort of outlined it right here in your outline so you can see how this works. Leviticus 18, beginning in verses 6, going down to verse 18, is a lengthy description of incest. 
It talks about heterosexuality and when you should not be in a relationship with somebody else of the opposite sex because they are too tightly related to you. You know, what kinds of relationships are incestual in nature? And just notice there are 12 verses of detailed descriptions given on heterosexual incestual sin. Notice that. We're going to come back to it in a moment. You get to verse 19. It says, do not touch a woman doing her menstrual uncleanness. That is bad. Verse 20 says, adultery is bad. Verse 21 says, killing your children is bad. Verse 22 says, homosexuality is bad. Verse 23 says, bestiality is bad. And you said, well, we just ran across verse 22. It said, homosexuality is bad. It's wrong. What do the revisionists say? How do they respond? The same kind of response they used for Genesis chapter 19. Oh, well, the homosexuality, they say, that is being talked about there is violent, pagan, abusive homosexuality. It's not the loving, consensual, mutual, affectionate homosexuality we have today. Let me show you how Mark Actemeyer says it. He says, the prohibitions in Leviticus were designed to prevent the Israelites from falling into very specific idolatrous activities practiced by the pagan peoples who had previously occupied the land. When the ancient Israelites heard references to males lying with other males, their thoughts would have turned to gang rape and similarly violent forms of sexual aggression on the one hand or to temple prostitution on the other Really? It would have never turned to the idea of two men who were, like, actually attracted to each other with homosexual affections? Is that what you think? Use your head to think about that for a moment. Mark Actemeyer's argument is consistently that loving mutual affections between same-sex men is something that only exists today. It didn't exist in previous history. Does that make sense? It doesn't. The other thing I want you to notice here, the words for homosexuality used in Leviticus 18 and verse 20 are very general words. Anytime a man lies with another man like a woman, and he used very general words for a very specific reason, because it's anytime a man lies with another man like a woman. It doesn't matter if it's loving or consensual. It doesn't matter if it's violent or abusive. Anytime a man lies with another man, like a woman, it's sin. In fact, according to chapter 20, it deserves the death penalty. Well, then Mark Actemeyer comes back and he says, well, you know, that's not really what God meant. There are certain times where it's appropriate. Think about this. In Leviticus 6, or chapter 18, verses 6 through 8, 18, he gave 12 verses of detailed permutations on incest about times when heterosexual relationships are too close and when they're not too close. So he gave all the fine details about heterosexual relationships because sometimes there are appropriate heterosexual relationships with somebody who is a near relative. But when he gets to homosexuality, just like, what, four verses later? He doesn't give you all different kinds of permutations and times when homosexuality would be right because there are no times when homosexuality is right, period. 
He uses general terms for a very specific reason. Now, the argument continues. Actemeyer and a lot of these revisionists will say, you really have no right to use Leviticus as support for us in New Testament times. That is an Old Testament book, has all kinds of details about sacrifices and the sacrificial system, and we don't listen to it today. So how dare you import it? Well, what you need to know is this. The ceremonial or the uh, ritual details of Leviticus are not appropriate for us today. The temple is no longer there. Jesus Christ has taken care of all that. But very interestingly, the moral code of Leviticus, remember we talked about that from chapter 17 on? In the moral code, the moral code is actually brought forward and is still applicable in New Testament times. Has anybody ever heard of love your neighbor as yourself? Who, quote, who, who said that? Like Jesus? You know where Jesus got it from? Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. So Jesus says that moral code that was back in Leviticus is still appropriate today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul talks about incest being wrong. And you know why he quotes, <clears throat> you know where he gets support for incest being wrong? Quoting from Leviticus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says homosexuality is wrong. You know where he gets support for, in his quote in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for homosexuality being wrong? Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. In fact, what you find is that Jesus quotes the Leviticus moral law code in the New Testament and says it's applicable. Paul quotes the Leviticus moral law code and says it's still applicable. Peter, I'm not going to give you the reference, but he does too. Peter says the moral law code is still applicable in the New Testament times. Now, if you've got Jesus, Peter, and Paul saying that the moral law code of Leviticus is still applicable for modern day, I would be very careful about saying Leviticus is an unapplicable Old Testament book that we can ignore. Because you are going against Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Very interesting as you think about this. Let's flip on to page four. Remember that in the holiness code, only one sin in the holiness code is called an abomination in the singular. There are multiple sins that are called abominations in the plural. The only sin that is called abomination in the singular, so it sticks out, is homosexuality, and it mandated the death penalty. Number three. This is a really good one. It's very important for you to think about this. The revisionists say, if we ignore Leviticus' instruction on a woman's menstrual period, shouldn't we also disregard Leviticus' instruction on homosexuality? Do you remember reading that? It was in verse 19. He says, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And then the people say, well, wait a minute, now you're picking and choosing again. You don't teach that in the New Testament times, but yet you all of a sudden want to focus on this one on homosexuality? Uh-uh. you got to give the whole moral code or you give none of the moral code. 
How would you respond to somebody who says that? And by the way, that is a very common argument from the revisionists. Here's how you respond. What you need to understand is in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20, when it lists um, these issues of sin, in, of sexuality, and in the family, they are listed in an order, a specific order. Each subsequent sin is walking further away from God's plan for sexuality and marriage. So it starts out light and then moves to heavy. Let me explain. Leviticus 18 starts about by saying, you know, you should not touch a menstruating woman. That's the light one. Then it says, by the way, you shouldn't also have sex with a neighbor's wife. Now you're really moving away from God's plan. But even further away from God's plan is having sex with another male. And Leviticus 18 continues, and even further away from God's plan is having sex with an animal. You see how there's a, a progression here? Same thing in verse tw or chapter 20, except chapter 20 doesn't even begin with touching a menstruating woman. It begins with the second one in, in chapter 18. Don't have sex with a neighbor's wife. And, and don't have sex is even worse as having sex with a family member. But even worse than having sex with a family member is having sex with a family member of a younger generation. But even worse than that is having sex with another man. But even worse than that is having sex with more than one partner. But even worse than that is having sex with an animal. And it continues. There are things that are even worse. So you see the progression? In chapter 18, in chapter 20 of Leviticus, it gets worse and worse and worse. And touching a menstruating woman is not even mentioned in chapter 20. And it's mentioned as the least offensive in chapter 18. But maybe the real question is, why, would he, why is it even mentioned at all? And this is what you need to understand. In the Old Testament, there is something called ritual uncleanness. Ritual uncleanness is not necessarily a sin, but it meant huh, you can't go to church that day. You were ritually unclean. Now, if anyone had a sore or an oozing wound on their body, they were ritually unclean. They hadn't sinned, but they couldn't go to church, so to speak. And what do we find the Scriptures say about a woman in her menstrual period? When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. So, the beginning of taking out of God's plan for sexuality is you're with your wife in her menstrual uncleanness, you're unclean until evening. You can't go to church. But remember, it steps up and gets worse. When you get to homosexuality, what's the prescription? Death penalty for both parties. You see how this doesn't really equate? And some scholars would argue and say, well, since it is ritual uncleanness, you could actually say that isn't this the very thing that Jesus abolished when the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was taken away? Because there is no such thing as ritual uncleanness now? So when they say that, you know, you have to throw the whole thing out, just because of that particular quote on the menstruating woman, don't believe it. Now, let's continue with this. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, because this is the, the key passage in the New Testament on homosexuality. 
And what we find is this. Why is homosexuality actually just horizontal evidence of vertical rebellion? Because that's what Romans chapter 1 says. Homosexuality, no matter what the situation, loving, consensual or not, it's just horizontal evidence of vertical rebellion. Let me read the text. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Once again, we have a progression in this text. It starts out with men rejecting the Creator and rejecting God. And God gives them over. And what's the first thing that happens? Instead of worshiping the Creator, they start worshiping the creation. It says they start to worshiping things that look like man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you and I look at them and go like, how could you worship a wooden statue of a lizard? Like, are you messed up? But God gave them over because they've walked away from Him. And what was the next step of progression as God gave them over? It says they pursued immorality. In other words, it wasn't just their worship that got messed up, but it was their sexuality that got messed up. Instead of saving their sexuality for marriage, literally it says they began to pursue immorality outside of marriage. So we're talking premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, all that stuff. And then it says there's a further step away from God. Not just do they not keep their passions within marriage, but their passions get inflamed for the wrong sex. Now you have men being inflamed with lust for other men, women being inflamed with lust for other women. That's the third tier of walking away from God. Because you all of a sudden start to violate the very creation order of Genesis. Now to me and to you, this passage seems abundantly clear that God's pattern is not homosexual relationships. You know, uh, whether that's violent gang rape stuff or that's loving, mutually committed stuff. It doesn't parse it either way. It just says anytime you're in homosexual relationships, you've stepped away from God's plan. How would Mark Actemeyer, how would he respond to this? Let me show you. And by the way, it's the same line of reasoning he's used for every single other previous one, which is, oh, this isn't talking about loving, consensual relationships. He says, the Greco-Roman society that Paul inhabited had no concept of sexual orientation 
and no cultural spaces of institutions that could support egalitarian, committed, same-sex relationships based on mutual love. Publicly prominent same-gender behaviors in the New Testament times would have been violent and exploitive. Military victors raped prisoners of war and masters routinely took advantage of slaves of both genders as a demonstration of dominance over them. Really? You're telling me that in the New Testament times, in the Greco-Roman world, there is no examples of men having loving mutual affection for other men like we have today. It was always just violent, exploitative stuff. What do you think? Is this loving mutual relationships something that is only now happening at the end of the year 2000? Or is there nothing new under the sun? Has it been that way for all of time? I'm going to tell you, folks, it's been that way for all of time. In fact, Mark Actemeyer is just plain wrong. Do the historical research. There are, um, from both gender orientations, there are homosexual classicists and heterosexual classicists, people who have studied the Greco-Roman world, and I might even, it's bad form for me to give you the 20 quotations, but I could, you know, I could give you a whole bunch of them. I could pile them up to show you that loving homosexual unions were part of the ancient world. Mark Actemeyer is not right. Let me just give you one from N.T. Wright. This is what he says. As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In fact, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as long-term, reasonably stable relationships between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. Nothing new under the sun. And so when Actemeyer says that we've got something different, the answer is no, you don't. This is the very thing that Paul said is walking away from God. It's the third level. It's like really far away from God. Remember, in the Old Testament, it deserved the death penalty. Now, I have one more point to make for you. You've been very patient. Let me go ahead. It's actually two texts, but we can make this point together. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's the question. Will practicing homosexuals of any form inherit the kingdom of God. I have two Greek words that we're going to focus in on in a few moments, but let me just read these texts. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And there's two Greek words, utoi malakoi and ute arsenkoitoi. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, and for men who are practicing homosexuality. That's the Arsene Koitoi word again. Enslavers, liars, 
perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, to me, that seems very clear. But what do you think Mark Actemeyer and the revisionists will say? Same thing they've been saying all along. Oh, that's not referring to the loving, nice homosexuality we have today. Look what he says. For our purposes, the most important thing is to recognize that these words refer to behaviors that do not look like a marriage relationship. It would make no sense, however, to take this fragment from Paul's argument and about our need to grow in faithfulness and use it to block committed gay people from entering into loving marriages. Really? Let me explain these two Greek words. The first thing you need to know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the most English translations will just say, nor men who practice homosexuality. But in the Greek, there are actually two Greek words here. It says, those who practice malakoi and those who practice arsenkoitoi. Two Greek words. Now, let me parse them out a little bit. Uh, this word arsenkoitoi literally means men who take men to bed. It's just compound word, men and bed put together. Interestingly, there are no instances of this word being used before Paul. Paul literally made this word up, but he didn't make it up out of thin air. At the time the New Testament was written, Jews were a little rusty on their Hebrew, so there was a book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament for those who are rusty on their Hebrew because everybody spoke Greek. Now, in Leviticus chapter 18, in the Greek Old Testament, what does it say? It literally says, men betters, arsen koitoi. Men who take men to bed, you know, are, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says those are the ones that are homosexuals. And so what Paul does is he literally takes one of the two key words out of Leviticus chapter 18 combines them together, and so everybody, when they read this, they remember Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 20. They go right back to it. He says, you know, people who are practicing this, men who are taking men to bed, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's speaking of the, uh, what do you call it, the, the male-orientated partner in a homosexual relationship is what it's speaking of. Now, this other word, malakoi, literally it means the effeminate ones. It means uh, someone who is soft, someone who is effeminate. Literally, it means a man who takes on the feminine role in a homosexual relationship. As you can see, this is a word we're going to come back to when we deal with transgender. The man who takes on the feminine role in a homosexual relationship it says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, men who are practicing that. So what Paul is saying is literally those who take on the masculine role in a homosexual relationship and those who take on the feminine role in a homosexual relationship who are unrepentant and continuing that in that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some people will say to me, Pastor, why are you spending so much time giving us details? Why are we speaking so directly on this issue? 
you know, this is debatable. Why can't we just all get along and then when we die and we go to heaven, we'll find out who's right and who's wrong? You know, they likened it to the, like the debates over the, the millennium. You know, they say those are debatable issues. I'm like, folks, this is not a debatable issue. This is a scripture that is, this is an issue that is very clear from scripture. And you're not going to be able to iron it out in heaven. Because if you are a practicing homosexual, you will not be in heaven. I don't care what denomination you're a part of. I don't care if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter. It's not my words. That's just the Bible. It's just what it says. In fact, the most unloving thing you can do to someone is just say, well, we'll agree to disagree because this is a debatable issue. It's not a debatable issue. Your eternity is on the line. It is a sin that in the Old Testament guaranteed capital punishment. It is a sin that was never parsed into different categories because there are no different categories. Homosexuality, period, is a very serious sin against the created order of God. So how do we deal with this? Well, number one, you have to know your text. Number two, that when you find those who are in a, a homosexual relationship, you, you have to be loving to them, you have to be gracious to them, you have to be kind to them, but you do not say that what they're doing is not sinful. You just show them the texts. Because God's Word is what produces conviction of sin. It doesn't matter if it's homosexual sin or if it's heterosexual sin or if it's sin with our mouth or if it's sin in our hearts. We read God's Word, and what does it do? Convicts our heart and brings us to repentance. So that's what we do. Now next week, we're going to dive into the questions that often go around homosexuality. Like, what about those with homosexual orientation? And what are they supposed to do? And then how do I deal with somebody who's a homosexual at work? And how, we'll deal with all those questions next week. But this week, it's very important that we understand what the Scripture teaches. Because most of our conversations and the conversations that circle around this don't involve what the Scripture teaches. And this is our authority. This is what we submit to. And this is how we direct our lives. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we come before you and we ask you that you would help us to have clear thinking on this issue of homosexuality. Just seven key passages that do speak very clearly about Genesis, as it speaks very clearly that only a man and woman can complement one another, and only a man and woman can have children with one another. In Genesis 19, about how um, homosexuality was one of the clear sins that was the reason that God destroyed Sodom. In Leviticus, about how so much homosexuality in any form is an affront to you. We pray that you would help us to be clear on these things, but also, Lord, help us to be very loving and patient, and gentle with those who are struggling with this in their life. We pray that you'd help us to build bridges, not walls. Help us to open the Scripture and let the Bible do the talking instead of us. And we pray that you would um, help us to think rightly and clearly and winsomely as we try to share the truth with our friends and our neighbors in this community. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us.
and may God continue to enrich your life.